How does hearing the very worst news change the way you navigate through life? I often describe running your business like a roller coaster, but no one is perhaps more aware of what a roller coaster life can really be than my next guest today. I have followed Deborah for a few years, but having never met her, I couldn't wait to finally speak to her. Deborah's enthusiasm for life, her positivity, her graciousness and honest approach to cancer and the cards she's been dealt are a testament to the strength of the human spirit. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. I'm the founder of Not on the High Street and Holly & Co and I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses. I believe that having a business, doing what you love, is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everybody start theirs. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs, and those who just simply inspire me, and asked them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor, NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown You will find Hello Deborah. I can't tell you how lovely it is to meet you Even though it's virtually And we're 14 weeks into lockdown um, You're a true beacon of light And I, I, I've been following you And you've been changing the view on cancer And I... Just, I cannot wait for this conversation because I know you've been on such a journey. Um, but even though I haven't actually met you, I feel like I know you. So it's just so lovely. I'm looking at your gorgeous, gorgeous, ridiculously gorgeous face, I must say. Um, but it's, it's welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. And thank you for having me on. Um, before we get into it properly, where are you recording from? Yeah, so uh, we're neighbours, aren't we? We are. Almost neighbours. Almost Almost neighbours. How even more ridiculous that we're doing this virtually. I know. I I actually feel like I almost know you because randomly I go into your shop in St. Margaret's. Um, I live in South West London along the river. Well, I'd love to live on the river, but I live near the river um, in Barnes. It kind of very much feels like my, where I feel most settled, walking along that river. Well, after all of this, you and I now have to, now I know you're in the shop, uh, we have no excuse then to have a great coffee. I'd love to just go back a bit and start at the beginning because you grew up in Surrey and you were a very keen gymnast, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was a national gymnast, actually. Gymnastics was my life. Um, what I mean by that is you pretty much spend every hour that you're not at school in the gym um, and then um, I got to, um, it sounds really weird to talk about it like this, but I got to kind of 14 and 15 and um, I knew that I was not going to make the Olympics. And I kind of just, you know, you just fall out of love with something because I think I just probably discovered boys and puberty and growing up. And I look back at it really, really fondly. Um, but I think, you know, when things just come to a natural end, um, but in a nice way, actually, retrospectively. And so you, uh, I read that you are, um, you strive to be an overachiever. I had a bit of an interesting schooling, actually, in that basically I'm, I'm dyslexic. But in order to get around it, um, I developed a photographic memory, which means that um, in order to, I can't spell um, but I still got an A in my 
in in English literature and I wrote I write now but I got around it through just learning um kind of memorizing keywords which I knew was enough brilliant in the exams so I just it, it, that sounds really you're random. talking to a fellow dyslexic here yes am I okay yes. okay that's good yes. like I'm you know I'm, I'm I always say that because I think and I say it actually to uh, reassure people like my daughter who's also dyslexic that it's not a problem does that make sense yes absolutely in a way I, I I call it a superpower sometimes but um yeah because you 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 have to be um quite athletic in your mind you have to start thinking about different ways around things which um I would say other people don't have yeah. so I yes it's 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 a it can be a blessing Tell me about this time before you became, I want to sort of the the in-between time of your childhood. um, And then I want to jump into you becoming a deputy head teacher. What were your passions in that sort of teenage land and and your younger um, adult life? I was a hard worker. I was a kind of, but I was also a bit of a kind of like, um, well, if somebody was going to stand for um, school president, I was going to stand for school president at college. So um, I ran a student council and... Um, You're ambitious. Yes, I am. But I would also say I, if I don't like something, then I want to fix it. I'm not very good at working within systems that say no. Um, so therefore I have to, well, I don't change them. I just kind of work within my own system so you either love working with me or you absolutely hate it (laughs) you're marmite I'm I'm quite marmite to work with (laughs) (laughs) and so what led you into becoming a teacher um so I um if truth be told I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life but yeah I ended up um, enjoying university life so much that I got to the end of it and realized that I forgot to well, not forgot, I just was like, oh, I don't really know what to do. And it was at the time when you had bursaries for teaching and the only subjects they were doing bursaries for teaching in so I could afford to do it was things like computer science. So I just applied. I just thought, oh, I can teach it. I, can t- I don't know why I thought I could teach it to myself, but I thought I'll just do it. Anyway, I was the only girl in the country that applied. Oh my and goodness me. So I think by default, they kind of just had to give me a place. However, I will never, ever, ever forget. So the first day that I turned up, there was a room, there was 20 of us on the course, and there was a room of 19 boys and me. And some really arrogant boy turned around and he said to me, oh, I think you're in the wrong place, like peas down the corridor. And I just thought, fuck you. And then I made damn sure that I qualified first in my class. Um, so, And then I just fell in love with teaching. And then I just had a bit of a purpose in terms of what I was doing. And I just kind of wanted to, again, change the system. Yeah, you wanted to change the system. And so before you were diagnosed, you were very career driven in terms of, well, you must have been because you became deputy head teacher at a secondary school. Um, you also had two young children. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of going to that pa- place and time where you're also experiencing difficulties within your um, marriage. Basically, everything suddenly was happening, wasn't it, for you? Tell me about this period of your life. I, I think... I think people will relate to what happens when you you're quite well very career driven in terms of you get caught up in well the world that you want to change and be part of but it means that then when I'm in a work mode um 
everything else around me suffers and that will Mm -hmm. be my health my relationships um obviously including my marriage um and then possibly my kids although I think my kids are kind of indirectly quite resilient as a result as a result of it (laughs) um but yeah you you go through a period of going for goals you're like I want to be a head teacher I want I want to do this and I was on a very very fast track scheme um to headship I was really ambitious the reason I wanted to be ahead is because I didn't like the system again and I I really really felt I still do feel incredibly passionately about that but I think you then get caught up with that dream you get mm-hmm. caught up with that dream that you're going to change that landscape um and I don't know what would have stopped me I think I as as you rightly said I'm, and I've been open about this before um your your marriage suffers mm-hmm. so I my husband separated and um, we're now back together and um you know that was quite a kind of challenging period I have to be honest with you that was really challenging I remember uh, when researching you, you you've you've mentioned it was a classic case of our marriage coming last you know you're hell bent and getting to a destination you know uh, come what may and if you have someone else working as well within the household um you know it's very crowded isn't it it's a very crowded space where potentially your marriage or potentially the kids and all these sort of things don't have their rightful space yeah i, I know because we've had a a previous conversation and I think you, you you articulated it beautifully in that you said that buzz of like um what did you say you said I bounce when I find fire somebody starter I, conversations fire starter conversations I love fire starter conversations I that's how I thrive in life mm-hmm. so the problem is is that I am easily persuaded into fire starter conversations rather than going no, 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 I need to just go home and look after my family. Um, it is a real challenge. I would say cancer and locked, cancer and lockdown, actually. Um, I wouldn't say I've transformed at all, but it's certainly made me question myself. I'm, I'm, I've become even more self-aware. I've always been quite self-aware, but I'm very self-aware of actually what a bit of a nightmare I am sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we all aren't we all I know that during um this time that we're talking about in your life you were leading a a really healthy life uh you were vegetarian for 25 years at that point you were running regularly um and yet you started to notice something wasn't right Uh, might you tell me a little bit more about this time and is it right that you initially you were tested for cancer and it came back negative so um I think when you're busy, like I said, everything else gets parked and that includes your health. Um, But, you know, if there's one thing that you listen to, my message would be don't park your health because Mm. there's nothing that you can do to get that back when it goes. Um, I uh, kept on putting off a change in bowel habits um, and I put it down to stress. I was actually working in a school at the time where we were trying to do a rescue project actually um it, it's now a great school but it wasn't special measures and so the stress of being uh, off studded every six weeks um of running on no staff of just wanting to just keep afloat really um takes its toll and so you assume that everything is stress alongside a broken marriage and all these different things 
I had a couple of blood tests and they all came back normal. Mm-hmm. And then I had something called an FAB test, which is a kind of a poo sample. It's now three years on that actual test has been changed to something called a fit test, which is much more accurate. Um, but my FOB test at the time mm-hmm. also came back normal. Yes, it doesn't detect all bowel cancers, but you kind of go, right, if your bloods are normal and, you know, sport is a massive part of my life. Um, you know, there, there shouldn't be too many lifestyle factors at the age of 35 for anyone, in fact, mm-hmm. um, or genetic reasons why I should end up um, with a diagnosis of, of bowel cancer. Um, And I just had one of those blindsiding moments where, unfortunately, I did keep on going back to my doctors and um, I was never referred for a colonoscopy. Um, So I had to privately get a colonoscopy done. Um, And I, again, that's probably my driving factor for wanting to change the system again. Yes. I mean, this ongoing uh, kind of theme with me um, in that it's not right. Because, um, again, I'm, I'm privileged that I can afford to go and get it done um, privately. Um, but uh, if I wasn't in that position, um, the other side of the coin, I wouldn't be sitting here with you right now chatting with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I would say that experience is, is certainly a driver for me in terms of wanting that not to happen to other people. Um, because then, unfortunately, by the time I was diagnosed with, with cancer, um, it was metastasized, so it was stage four, and it had gone from my bowel, and I had had I had a six and a half centimeter tumor in my bowel, and then eight tumors in my lungs. My goodness, I just it it, it really does take you back. How you were obviously someone who noticed something, you kept really going after that help. You were actually being delayed but aware. And then you kept on pushing and pushing and pushing. And only then do you then find out that that you didn't have just a, a, you know, it wasn't just the beginnings of something. It was actually within your body. And I can just only imagine that moment that you found out and how I hear, you know, you left your job, which of course I can imagine it was incredibly difficult. You're, you have to tell your family. How did you manage during these early days of your diagnosis? Well, I, th- I think you don't actually, to be honest with you. you. You kind of go into a fake world of like just existing really. Um, and it's actual trauma. So you you pretty much exist from day to day and you float I call it just floating along in a little bubble of surreal depression probably um and thinking this can't be real this can't be real um and you're right I kind of had to park a lot of things in my life I mean the job thing was quite interesting because originally I didn't quite realize how serious my bowel cancer was and so I I actually went back into school so I got diagnosed on the 16th of December which for any teacher will know is quite often the last day of the um, term and because it was Christmas uh, we decided um, my consultant decided that we weren't going to operate actually until the first week of the new year 
um, in true teacher fashion, I went in on the first day of term. Um, and then I got up and I told everybody, I told the whole school why I wasn't going to be there. And I said, I'm just having an operation. It's fine. At this point, we didn't actually know it spread to my lungs. It was only after we removed the bowel tumor um, that we did. And I, I got up and I told all the staff and a thousand students um, because I was deputy head. I, you know, I, I had invested a lot in the school. People mm. trusted me. Um, and it was a school that I did not want to let people down on. They, mm-hmm. The last thing they needed was somebody dumping them. So I wanted to tell them that I wasn't dumping them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, but I said, don't worry, I'll be back in like six weeks maximum. And then off I trotted and into hospital the next day for a bowel resection. And then my life totally changed. It just kind of, I then unfortunately kind of went from like negative news to negative news to negative news to what essentially is an incurable cancer. Um, yes, I'm living with it and I've had a roller coaster of different places in terms of where I've been in terms of treatment, but the statistics are very much stacked against me. So only 8% of people will survive for five years uh, with metastatic bowel cancer in this country. Want to win a one-to-one 90-minute mentoring session with me? Well, thanks to NatWest, you can. All you need to do is sign up to the NatWest Business Builder using our code to be in with a chance. The Business Builder is an entirely free e-learning site packed full of information and advice, covering everything from well-being to finance. Head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker to find out all the details. Now, as you know, each week we run a competition with NatWest who, in a world first, give away their ad break space to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your brilliant businesses to hundreds and thousands of listeners. So without further ado, let me hand over to this week's NatWest independent ad break winner. My name is Rebecca and I'm the founder of At Bamboo Brush. We are an award-winning, purpose-driven, eco-friendly company. Our mission is to educate, inspire and empower others to change the world and eradicate single-use plastics. Our story and background play a huge role in who we are and our mission going forward. Our passion stems from years of working around the world and witnessing the impacts plastic pollution is having on our planet. We launched last year with our hashtag 1 million by 2020 campaign with one simple product for one simple change, a bamboo toothbrush. To educate and inspire 1 million people to swap from a plastic toothbrush to an app bamboo brush by the turn of the next decade. We hit our target within nine months of launching. We sold our brushes in 48 countries, a partner with Virgin Atlantic, Team GB and many incredible companies. We've expanded our products to expand our message, inspired by combating the top 10 ocean polluters. For each product sold, we donate profits to vulnerable children across the world. We deliver plastic pollution workshops in primary schools and organise community cleanups worldwide. Make your one simple change today by visiting www.bamboobrush.com. That's B-A-M-B-U-U brush.com. Thank you. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, we've created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co.
you know, when I speak to you and we were talking off and we're going to talk about some of the projects that you're working on and how busy you are and the energy pouring out of you. And it just must have been uh, an incredibly difficult time to keep you, you know, I read that you, it sent you into a massive depression, you know, the, this idea that because you were so driven um, to not have that, that sort of in your world, you didn't have a job, you didn't have what was you, you know, you'd always been driven to get to a point and now you didn't have that. Not only did you not have that as your anchor, but, you know, you were dealing with a whole world that's unknown to anybody, I suppose, until that awful day that you are diagnosed. Yeah. So on the career front, I defined my worth quite a lot by my career success. And, you know, yeah. it's not an uncommon thing. I, yeah. I appreciate Hands up. that. Absolutely. I totally I understand that. I have two children who I also like, you know, they're amazing. But um, for me, actually... I want to give them a, a good example of somebody, you know, but I think, yeah. So for someone that uh, loves their career to, for it to disappear overnight. And that was my choice. Actually, the reason is because actually, can I be a hundred percent relied upon? No, I can't. Um, so therefore I can't commit that. That would be unfair for for that community of kids. Mm. So I just had to make the decision not to, which was absolutely awful because what I realized is that by doing so, it plummeted me into absolute depression, probably more so than my cancer. Because yes, I was dealing with my cancer, but I had nothing else to distract me. And yes, I had my kids, but then every time I looked at my kids, I got sad about the fact that I might not see them in the future. So that wasn't a good distraction. Um, and obviously I had my friends, but then it becomes emotionally draining, repeating and going through where you are when you don't even know what's happening. And normally my escape and my coping mechanism in any rubbish would be like my career. So I plummeted into massive depression. And then I got to one day where um, uh, I wrote about this in a blog once where a friend of mine came round and my mum came round and they went, Deborah, get out of bed. Like, you really fucking smell. <laughs> I mean, we're laughing now. And of course, it's not a, f a funny matter because I I really do empathize. And I think a lot of people who um, have relied on their personal worth, in, in a sense, to be associated with what they build and what they do, it's incredibly difficult when that's taken away from you um and I know then you decided so you you know got into that shower you, you sprayed <laughs> yeah. on some deodorant turning point that's why I remember it so much <laughs> and, and this is when um through this journey this stage you decided to start your blog bowel babe to help raise awareness that young women also get bowel cancer and it was so incredibly brave of you to tackle this at a time that must have felt you know, well, firstly, it was incredibly personal to yourself. Um, did you find that writing helped you um, in what must have been this prolonged dark period of your life? Yeah, 100%. I, I was at a bit of a pathway and that shower was a massive kind of crossroads for me. And you really have two choices. I can't change my cancer. I wish I wish I could. Um, but I can become a victim of my cancer. Absolutely. And but I know where that's going to spiral me to. Um, and it's it's not a very happy place to be, to be honest with you. And I do I sit into that those places sometimes because you kind of can't help it because it's pretty of hard. Of course, because um, you're human. 
but then it's having the ability to flip it so it's like okay fine right but now I'm done with that I need to kind of get on with get something back on else the beam. Get back on the beam and th- this is the way I looked at it I've always been quite resilient and I would say that comes from my gymnastics yes um so I started writing actually to um I was part, obviously part of a wonderful teaching community and people wanted to know how I was doing. And I um, selfishly found it quite emotionally draining to repeat my story. And so I just wanted to be able to put my story out there. Then I can have a conversation about something else or we can pick up on it. But it's like I can get all the hard stuff out there. Bow Babe was a bit of, um, I've got, you know, quite a cheeky street to me. And whenever I started looking for um young woman with cancer it was always associated with pink breast cancer mm-hmm. now don't get me wrong no cancer is pink and fluffy but the marketing and the image around young women with cancer is pink ribbons which is changing slowly through through my research i then realized there's more women out there not with breast cancer of mm-hmm. of this young age and who's representing them and and actually, I think Bow Babe is almost a bit of a tongue-in-cheek um, kind of poke at that system. Um, but for me, the writing and then being able to turn um, shit into gold is something that I, you know, you want to be able to do because, um, well, I do anyway, that, that this shouldn't be happening, right? It, it really shouldn't be happening. And um, in the last two weeks, I've said goodbye to... Um, too many people actually um one very very close friend of mine um and over the last three and a half years I have said goodbye to too many people um and that needs to stop and it has to stop so that's that's what drives me to share my story I read that you lost a close friend um recently and I'm sorry for your loss um it was through your blog though that you then um decided um I think that you bonded with Rachel Bland and Laura Mahon and decided to co-host this brilliant and award-winning of course if anything to do with you um you me and the big C I mean it really is just the most wonderfully soulful brilliant podcast and I think it really did make people sit up and listen um to the honesty surrounding cancer and it had never been spoken about in this way and I know that tragically you recorded your last podcast as a trio just 10 days before Rachel died tell me about this podcast and and what that did for you and for you as a group and for you individually so I would say we were all on different platforms so my writing um this is another cheeky aspect of my life so my writing became a column because um one of the editors of The Sun said, oh, I can publish your blog. And I've been writing a column every week for the last uh, three years, which is an amazing platform. And then obviously Instagram kind of became part of that. And you're right, that's how I then met uh, Rachel. She knew that I was kind of like doing doing writing. She was obviously in broadcasting and just said, do you want want to do a podcast? And I was like, go on then. Um, and Rachel then put me in contact with Lauren and the three of us had never actually met in real life until we went to Manchester to record our first ever podcast and then we just bonded over the fact when you're in the crap you want to be in the crap with people that understand it and Rachel was totally unique in terms of the way that she faced her death um, 
she did it on her terms. She knew she was going to die and she led us in terms of talking about really hard topics from death to, you know, joking about what we're going to wear at her funeral because there's always laughter in darkness. Um, And she was so... um, Brave is the wrong word, dignified, incredible. I don't think I could do that, actually. I would I would be in denial, I think, about mm-hmm. it um, a lot more than she was. Um, but sadly, we, um, as a trio, so obviously we're still recording the podcast now and instead of Rachel, um, her husband has taken the place. So the podcast is certainly um, uh, developed over time in terms of, how from where it started but the original format was the three of us and then very sadly we recorded right up until Rachel's death 10 days before she died and yeah it was very very challenging and then um it got quite a lot of public attention so I think I was flung very much even more so in terms of not the limelight because it's hardly the limelight but very much into the media um and kind of like went into deputy head mode um you just go into kind of everybody has to look at you and you're calm and you've got it all under control and I think I went into that mode of like 15 minutes after my friend died I knew that I was going to be on air um and I just broadcast I just like went into I've got Mm. this because I knew that that's what she would have wanted me to do and she knew that I could do it So I did it, but then about six months later, I just like hit a brick wall. And then it takes like a bit of scraping off the wall to carry on again. (laughs) Carry on. It was, it's, um, I remember the time actually. I remember uh, hearing about the podcast and how much awareness was driven um, to talking about cancer differently. Um, We'd never done it before. I think the C word is is a scary word for a lot of people. And so you you made it something that we could speak about, um, but it was much more sort of very real, three women that you could identify with just talking. And I know you had a dream to write your own um, incredibly inspiring and honest book, Fuck You Cancer. And that whilst writing is, is it, I, I, I just think about what you've been able to achieve whilst, un, am I right in saying you were receiving treatment? You must have been receiving yeah. treatment throughout all of this. Um, you know, the book is so beautifully written. It's eloquent. Um, I know friends who actually, unfortunately, in this lockdown have been diagnosed with cancer. They've bought your book. And I cannot tell you how much mm-hmm. it is helping them. Tell me about how, because this must have been a moment, because you, I remember um, sort of reading that you didn't actually know if you would be there for that moment when it was published. Yeah, for me, um, talking about cancer in a way that is relatable is really key um, because I think there's always this vision of what cancer looks like, but cancer looks like me. It can be any one of us and one in two of us are going to get it. And I think we have this cancer is a dirty word because um, people in their 60s and 70s who are now on average, well, the average age of getting cancer. So when they were younger... So in nineteen in nineteen seventy nine, on on average, um, across all cancers, um, the life expectancy was one year. Mm. Now more people will live for ten years than will die of cancer. 
um, we do still have we have we have a duty, I think, to educate our next generation. And so unless people like myself or our generation start doing that because we can show that we can live with cancer, we're going to bring up a generation of children really scared of it. Um, so I think that's that stems from the podcast. And then I think my book is also it, it kind of it's a funny educational thing. I wrote it. Um, I called it Fuck You Cancer because I think I was in a kind of fuck you world kind of like life at that particular point in time. And I wrote it in about four weeks um, at the last stage of my chemo cycle when I was just on steroids. Steroids is what I was being given to dampen down the hideous side effects that I was undergoing. But I got I basically went into like a writer's dark hole of emotional like roller coaster um, and came out with a book um, and then um, strangely enjoyed the whole experience, which is quite odd. I know. And then um, I'm writing another one at the moment. Wow. So my next book is called How to Live When You Should Be Dead. <laughs> Gosh, I, am I allowed to say what a brilliant title? Oh, thank you. And it's not, it's not, it's not actually cancer related for once. So I'm going to, I mean, there's always going to be an element of cancer with me, but I kind of, somebody said to me, you're very good at pulling yourself out of, um, out of the crap, basically. When I was in education, I, um, I specialized in, in mindset and um, researching the impact of resilience and mindset on education. I, I led like a big um, national wow. research program on it. And as a result now in the national curriculum, um, it's one of the reasons that we have kind of mindset in terms of positive mindset, um, essentially learning how to learn, learning how to like bounce back from failure and I'm realising just how it's all intertwined in terms of my base of research um, as an educational geek followed, which probably was stemmed. The reason I went into that was because I probably learned it from gymnastics and then I'm having to apply it in cancer life. But then I'm realising you can apply it across the board. and so Across the board. Gosh, it's, it's, it's that connecting of the dots, isn't it? It's the yeah. spooky thing that when you look at your life, how possibly that you needed to have done that in order to have the strength to be able to have done what you've done. One of the things I hear you speak passionately about is this changing of the language around cancer, you know, so why do you really think it's important? Is it because of that younger generation and making sure that your daughter, your son, their children have started to have a different um, mindset about it? I would say that, um, it's funny how you always come back to your passion I've come full circle I've gone back to realizing that actually education on whatever platform that looks like is key but ultimately I think if I'm being honest with you it's I live in quite a heartbreaking world of of quite a morbid world um where I realize because I'm seeing it failings people who um are not accessing things that could keep them alive people who have had late diagnosis um and and the key thing so for example with bowel cancer as i said earlier my chances of survival are like eight percent when it's caught early it's over 90 percent it mm. is a 
survivable, curable cancer. But this is the same with most cancers across the board, in fact. So cervical cancers, getting our smear, smear tests done, checking our boobs, is, is knowing our bodies, right? And, and actually, it's all good and well. And trust me, I, I put pressure on both sides of the system. And it's all good and well kind of doing awareness. But actually, research is what's keeping me alive. So I'm on drugs, you know, um, I was one of the first cohorts to be on these drugs. Um, and they've kept me alive for the last year. As a result, I will actually sit on the board for NICE, which is the body that approves the drugs um, this August to make them available on a wider scale. Um, and I just think that um, there's a lot to be changed in terms of education, of, of even at the GP level in terms of young people get cancer. Um, there's a lot to change in terms of um, personalising um, care um, and uh, and actually just, you know, a lot of it, I can't fix the system, but I can certainly ask difficult questions and certainly use my platform for what I hoped will be positive change, um, which is essentially saving people's lives. Mm. Well, they're lucky to have you. We've teamed up with our friends at Three and all year we'll be working together to make business dreams come true. Share your dreams on social using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer and who knows what will come true. With Three Means Business Plan, I love that you can get up to £500 worth of benefits from their specialist partners to help give your business a helping hand. Whether you need support with accounting or building a new website, Three have got you covered. Now over to a short story about those that dreamt big and flew. Coco Chanel is a name synonymous with high fashion, but her journey to success was against the odds. As she said herself, my life didn't please me, so I created my life. Like so many, the golden thread of what would one day be her dazzling career was laid when she was just eight years old. Taught to sew, iron and embroider by nuns at an orphanage where she was brought up, Gabrielle, better known by her nickname Coco, became a seamstress aged 18. In between her jobs as a seamstress, Coco sang cabaret and pursued a career in theatre. But after realising the bright lights of the stage were not meant for her, she turned her attention to millinery and began selling her creations. She opened her first store, branching out into clothing in 1913, and by 1915 she was opening her second store. Just three years later, Coco opened her Paris shop. But it was the launch of Chanel No. 5, the iconic perfume that would catapult the brand to new heights in the 1920s and 30s alongside the iconic suits, which remain central to Chanel today. Chanel's life was not without controversy, particularly around her involvement with a German aristocrat and accusations of spying during World War II, which Coco has always refuted. 
After many years in seclusion and 15 years after she had closed her fashion house, age 70, Coco decided it was the time to return to the world of fashion. Her classic feminine designs reignited the consumer love of Chanel across the world, and it remains a leading brand today. An early pioneer and female entrepreneur, Coco lived by the motto, to achieve great things, we must first dream. Don't forget to share your own business dream using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. To discover more about Three's business plans, search Three Means Business. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. that it's always been a dream for you to be on Strictly Come Dancing. Uh, The Instagram page, All on the Board, described you as a wine-loving, cancer-finding Cinderella, and they launched a campaign for you to be on the show. I mean, how unbelievable is that too? I feel like I need to get on this this, the bandwagon here and cheerlead you on. Um, I I follow you and, and I feel this energy and I totally understand they have to have you on that's the starting point um I watch you dance in the garden I watch you do all of these things and this sort of energy and I I do look at you and I think how does she do that does she feel unwell right now is this real um tell me about that because I think that there's a there's a you know you're talking about something very serious and yet you have this gorgeousness red lipstick beauty uh, you know, uh, energy. That's all I can describe it. And anyone who doesn't follow you must follow you to know what I'm talking about. It, mm-hmm. Does that help you get through? So I would say um, it is real, but it's also um, a coping mechanism, a massive, massive coping mechanism. It's a little bit of faking it till you make it um, but or faking it till you feel it. Um, and then somebody said, oh, no, th- that's not the way it should be. You know, you should just you should feel it before you can become it. But you know what? When you're feeling really down and depressed and you're you know, you, you've literally said goodbye to another friend. Um, actually, life might not be that great, actually. Um, so you need to have things that will allow you to um, pull yourself out of the darkness because you can sit in the darkness. But being living in the darkness is not a very fun place to be. And so I think, I think, um, yeah, I would say I am a bit of a fireball of energy, but then I would say I always have been, you know, apparently I said to my mum once when I was 10, that why isn't there like 36 hours in a day? Because I can't actually do everything that I want to do in 24. (laughs) So you haven't changed. (laughs) That's the thing. Cancer, cancer does change you, but in a way, the best thing that if you have cancer, the best thing you can do is not is kind of still remind yourself who you were before cancer. Mm. But I would say that actually, I'm only like now feeling like I'm coming back into who I am. Um, and and do you think that that's what's seen you through? That 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 you almost replace if we go back to your story, leaving your being a teacher and that that defined you. And now you have created during this period of time something else that defines you. Yeah, and I found it really difficult because almost cancer became my business. Actually, I said this in an interview the other day. I said, I'm not the victim, right? And it's like what I said in terms of empowering other people. But I think 
you need escapism you need whatever that escapism looks like so mm-hmm. if, if it feels like you're getting into something you're making you know you're kind of um, you're owning it you're, you're owning yeah. it you're kind of like taking back control it's trying to take back control in a situation I think um and and am I right in saying in January this year you mentioned um that your recent scans had been positive um but you're still receiving treatment is that right Yeah, so it's a bit of a confusing situation in that I, so I have metastatic cancer, but I got to an incredibly amazing place uh, because of treatment and drugs um, where I actually went from having about 15 tumours, not all at the same time, but over the last three and a half years in my body to getting back into a place where I had no evidence of disease. So I was cancer free on paper. Now, you're only as good as your last scan, really. Um, uh, yeah. And um, it was a very good thing, actually, for me now, because I I thought I was um, stronger. I hate the stronger. I thought I was one up on the cancer. And so you kind of think, oh, I can take my foot off the pedal. And um, cancer taught me a lesson very quickly in that four weeks. So I basically came off my drugs because I was like, I'm done with it. COVID's happening. I'm tired. Like, you know, we're cancer free. You know, I'm out of here. I'm out of here, basically. Like, live my life. See, I wasn't totally like that, but I was like, you know, see see you in eight weeks after COVID or whatever. And um, four weeks later, I went in for a blood test and my tumour markers, which is what we use to monitor, went skyrocketed. And it was almost like somebody was saying to me, Deborah, you need to realise that you need to control your cancer. So I didn't have a choice. I mean, I was then like tail between my legs back in the hospital chair the next day. Um, And then unfortunately um, had to have during COVID, both radiotherapy and CyberKnife. I saw, I saw. So it's like I've, I've had all that treatment. I'm still on treatment. It's kind of one of those things you have to, I will always have to manage this. Mm -hmm. Um, Tumor markers have now come back down to normal. Um, I haven't been scanned yet because um, it's too early to be honest with you in terms of timeframe from, from radiotherapy and stuff, but I feel okay. I feel tired, but that, I think that's just because I can't sleep. (laughs) and I think and you know and through this time you know you were dealing with cancer and COVID and and I hear that you're also now filming for the BBC's panorama um the impact of COVID on cancer um tell us about this because I really look forward to watching it thank you so I'm really enjoying making it actually um and it was very clear early on and obviously we're in it middle of a pandemic but I even I noticed the shift in terms of cancer services but I was hearing heartbreaking stories of people whose treatment were just being whipped away um people having to weigh up the risk the biggest risk now the question I think that we're exploring which unfortunately we now know the data so sadly the data came through And for me, I think the biggest thing is that COVID happened. People were really scared. People didn't go to their GPs. So what we call patient referrals, which is essentially where somebody will go to get a referral, which will eventually lead to a diagnosis, was down, actually down by 75%. But the problem is, is that cancer doesn't go anywhere. 
And that's really scary to know that there's cancers in the system. There are thousands and thousands, potentially more people than died of of COVID sitting there with undiagnosed cancers. We now have a backlog in the system because unfortunately cancer services were compromised and they were shut down. And we arguably have a national crisis on our hands. I, I know people campaigning for heart disease will tell you exactly the same story. And I think the question is, did we become a corona service versus a national health service? We have to remember that so many health conditions go on Mm. at the same time. And the risk is, unfortunately, um, the impact on life as a result of that um, will be huge um, in terms of when you look at somebody um, that, say, um, is a 40-year-old that might have been denied treatment for their bowel cancer or pushed treatment for their bowel cancer because it was deemed that their risk of COVID was too high. Actually, it's transpiring that they're far more likely to have died of their bowel cancer or will die of their bowel cancer. So, I mean, we can see the headlines coming out every single day at the moment. The data is quite um, tragic. And then, and then the reality is it becomes real life and the real life are my friends or people in the cancer community um, and the case studies and the case studies, unfortunately, is my friend Kelly. And my friend Kelly was diagnosed with bowel cancer at the same time as me and she died two weeks ago. Um, And we filmed with her for the programme and her story will and is having an impact um, on on hopefully a call to action to help to work together to sort this. Um, But it's, you know, forget the statistics. When you see it, you see it there as a life. Um, And me knowing that I'm on the other side of the coin because I got treatment. Um, That is is the driver, really, and the heartbreak. I sound really morbid, don't I? Sorry, I don't mean to sound You know what? It's such a, it's an amazing thing that you're doing this. And God willing, we will never be in this situation again. But let's say we ever were or will be in the future. You know, what you're doing here, making this program is going to be fantastic in that it cannot happen again. We're coming to the end of this interview. I wanted to ask um, if you had to sort of summarize uh, what you've learned about life. um, Is there one burning insight that you have that you can share with us um, because of your journey? shit definitely happens <laughs> yeah um so my best advice to to somebody would be like never to plan out your life do it but but then rip it up now my life had to be ripped up I didn't have a choice and I'm okay um I wish I didn't have cancer I would absolutely give up everything not to have the cancer but will I um, will I die with any regrets? No. But would I have done? Maybe. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Tell me, um, on this podcast, um, Deborah, I ask everybody, what's been um, your highs and lows? You know, your sort of the roller coaster of life for you, the roller coaster of cancer, this journey, building Bow Babe. Um, tell me, what would you say has been one of your biggest lows on this journey? Um, my biggest low is 
a repeating um I say goodbye to more people than I celebrate weddings or um or births. I say goodbye to friends within the community and then every so often um through this journey you meet not I'm not saying people aren't real friends, but you meet people special that people. are your special people. Um and I unfortunately have lost too many special people. But that that's what breaks me. And you can I see can like quite almost like I can imagine. Know. I and yeah. and I can see. And so thank you for sharing that. And and conversely then through that tragedy that I can really feel um your proudest moment, your greatest high. Yeah. Uh recently in lockdown it's just been learning how to cook. <laughs> <laughs> I made a quiche the other day and then a souffle and I was like I don't even recognize this girl um so that that was a positive um and actually realizing that you can you know even in the rubbish you can have a lot of laughs because actually um and that is a choice that's a choice that I've made and I think that if you know if nothing else um, I think that's what I'm most proud of myself for is like finding time to laugh at the shit. Yeah, I think everyone that follows you, that's what we're proud of you for doing. That's your gift to us, I would say. And um, one word that you would feel um, spring or springs to mind that's been your friend during this journey? Mm, kindness. Like, absolutely kindness I'm sure there's lots of better words but I think that probably yeah, that's sums the one that up the words that's one that came to you you're a true inspiration you really are and I do think that everyone should hear your story um just your resilience Deborah you're you know it's a word that we're using a lot at the moment but you know your resilience your determination um is pretty phenomenal you're a pretty phenomenal woman um, and, you know, I'd love to sit firstly and drink coffee with you in the shop. I want to drink wine with you in the evening. Um, and I just, yeah, you, you've, you've really taught so much of so many of us so much about cancer. And, um, you know, if any of us were to have to travel that journey, um, you've made it less scary. So from me and everybody, thank you, Deborah, for that. Thank you. I can't wait. So as soon as well, as soon as your shop reopens, um, I'm I'm in there. I can't believe it's actually well. Obviously, we're neighbours. It's at the end of my sister's road. I know. How, Isn't that how funny? <laughs> and now it's that time in the podcast where I hand over to you to read your letter to your younger self. I don't know what you're going to say, um, but I just wanted to thank you in advance for sharing a piece of your soul with us um, today. Thank you, Deborah. Um, so I've chosen to write to my 30-year-old self. Um, I thought about this for a while um, and I realised actually um, that was probably the time in my life that I probably needed the most amount of um, reminding about what's important in life. Um, so I appreciate I'm not a child, but I probably was a child. <laughs> um, so... Dear Deborah, happy 30th birthday. Um, are you okay? Well, I know you aren't, but you fall even yourself over your ability to at least look okay. 
And you need to question, are you thriving? Um, well, you look on the surface to be so, but that's the beauty. You you look like a swan. Um, on the surface, everything is fine. Um, but underneath, you're just paddling as quickly as you possibly can to stay afloat. In front of you is a massive, massive wall. And you've tried to look incredibly hard and simply you can't see it. You're going to hit it really hard. You'll crash like you never knew possible. You think you've crashed before, but this is something else. You will face death, relationship breakdowns and failure, proper failure. I'm pleased you don't know this, actually, because if you knew it, um, you'd probably run in the opposite direction. And you wouldn't realise how you already have everything you need to get through it, whatever the outcome might be, because sometimes getting through it might not lead us down the path that we want to tread. So right now, at the age of 30, please stop and breathe and look at the trees for once. You say that you look at them, but you don't really. And stop worrying about what might be and realise that life is okay if it doesn't go to a plan. I know that you get nervous even thinking about what happens if there's not a plan. Have you even stopped to acknowledge that on the outside, your life actually looks pretty good right now? You've always been an overachiever. You did well. Pat yourself on the back for once. Say, well done. You've ticked the boxes. But more than that, you're actually making a difference in something that you love and having fun along the way, dancing as always, um, friends around you, always with a big glass of wine. But somewhere niggling inside of you, you feel unfulfilled. Do you even stop to remember that there is a world that doesn't revolve only around you, your career and what goes on in your brain? Do you know that your kids love you not because you buy them stuff consistently, but because they just love you for being their mum? If the world ended tomorrow, you'd go down clawing away, shouting, no, 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 I'm not done yet. You're always going to think like that, but you will learn that actually you can feel happier with the choices that you make. So should the world end tomorrow, you at least feel that you have no unfinished business. But that's because you're currently living in the future and you're saving the real living that you have for another day. The one where we say, well, one day we'll do this or when I'm older, I want to do this or let's put this aside for a rainy day. Or, you know what, when we finish working, let's retire and go and do this. You'll go through life assuming that you have life and you take it for granted because it's always there, right? It's always been there and you've never questioned it. You've always, always had a future. That's correct. You shouldn't be scared of not having a future. But when it's taken away from you, you realise just how precious the idea of having a future is. You will never be organised. Don't even try to pretend that you can be because one day you will realise you just need to stop and ask for help. Dance, keep dancing, dance through the storm because it will carry you far. Anxiety will live with you forever, but remember it's been with you for 15 years and will be with you for 15 more. You will ride it and learn to recognise it, and you will always be one of and it will always be one of your largest challenges. Don't ever assume you have it cracked. You don't. And you probably never will. But let's remember that there are dark points. You've come through them and that you will do it again and you will be back there again. You must remember this fact. But let's look back to 10 years ago when you were 20. You couldn't drive at night for fear of dying, triggered by the death of your cousin Vicky. 
You couldn't fly for fear of dying. You couldn't walk along a busy London street for fear of dying, collapsing, having an unprovoked heart attack. You feared death in every aspect of your life. You lived through anxiety and were driven through the adrenaline of life, but really it was fueled by your fear of death. It was and has always been your largest fear. Every health anxiety boiled down to that key question, am I going to die? Well, yes, Deborah, you probably will die. In fact, not probably, certainly all of us will die. Maybe you'll die at 80. Most likely you'll die before you're 40. Arguably, it's anybody's guess. But go long, back the outlier. You've always been the outlier. You will get cancer before the age of 40. That in itself is an outlier, an overachiever. But then be the outlier and recognise that actually things, yet again, don't always go according to plan. And this can also have its positives. Life, yes, indeed, doesn't go according to plan. Make the plan, rip it up, go off piece and have the confidence to know that you will be okay. Not all the time, but believe that you can do things you never thought you could do because you simply said yes. And to know that actually saying yes is taking you to the darkest and most wonderful places. Know that your kids will know how much they are loved, not by the time you spent with them, but by the way that you made them feel. And above all, know it's okay to cry. Yes, it's okay to crack sometimes to show people your weakness because ultimately you know you can wipe them and tomorrow is another day and all we can do is be grateful to have one more day because that big future that you used to live in well it's it just might never happen so you have a choice be sad and mourn for it feel sorry for it plan for it or live now one day at a time because you will realize that all you have left is now because you ride it every moment on the wings of angels that only wish they had one more sunset to watch, one more morning to see in. So Deborah, I can't promise you that life ahead will be easy for the next 10 years, but life is a gift. And girl, if anyone can dance along the pathway of it, then you can. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh dearie me. What a beautiful, beautiful letter. What a beautiful letter. And it's so eloquent and beautifully written and um I really thank you because um you must have had to dig deep to write that and to share that with us and you're very vulnerable and thank you so so much for your energy you're just oh you're a beam of energy and um and I can't wait to watch where you saw because it thank you so much Before you go, don't forget, if you want to be in a chance to win a 19-minute mentoring session with me, all you need to do is sign up to NatWest Business Builder, which is packed full of videos and advice, all with the aim to help you build your business and arm you with all the tools you need. To find out more, head over to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker. Your support really means the world to me and it really does help spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed